The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, I see. I think I see smoke in here. It's, I, does anyone see it? I feel like if I, if I squint, maybe I'm just so used to seeing smoke that it's just ingrained in my brain. Guys, let's grab our Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 13. We're going to, I know you just, you just sat down, but let's stand back up real quick. Let's read it together out of honor for God's word. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be picking up in verse 1 and carrying all the way through to verse 9. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word. Father, we come this morning, hopefully humbly. Lord, what we hold in our hands right now, God, is not just a book. It's not just a a bunch of ideas. It's not a a, a rule book or a moral blueprint. God, what we hold in our hands is is the access point to your voice. It's the way that we can be connected to, to the fullness of life. God, what we hold in our hands is supernatural. And your Holy Spirit is here ever present and waiting to speak these words into our hearts in ways that bring us to life. God, we hold your word in our hands and we recognize that we submit ourselves under it, God. Lord, we do not lord over this. This lords over us. We give you permission, God, to speak this morning. God, we give you permission, Lord, to rule our hearts, to correct our behavior, to correct the deepest parts of our soul with the word. And we pray that it would, God, that it would cut us in a deep way to bring healing in life, God. We're so in need of correction. We're so in need of our thinking to be transformed. And would you please do that this morning through the word. God, bring this text to life, Lord, through a fallen and broken vessel like me. Would you speak this morning, God? I'm not interested in my words. I'm interested in your words, God. We want the supernatural to happen this morning where you speak in a prophetic way and it changes our lives, God. So we invite you now, Lord. Lord, would you please Come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat, guys. All right. So about a week ago, uh, I was out backpacking um, with um, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law, and we went out to a really amazing lake called Grizzly Lake in the Trinity Alps in Northern California. Um, and it was a really a, f- a fantastic trip, a really long hike. And as we were hiking out... Um, I was kind of up on my own, just, just really trying to get back to the car, and we were really close to the car. And as we were hiking along, I looked down the, the path a little bit, and I just was really astounded by this tree. There was just this huge, massive tree that just stood out above all of the other trees. And as I was, as I was looking at it, I noticed that it was very healthy looking. It had a very thick, uh, just, just, um, trunk that the top was full of green foliage it seemed very alive and I think the reason that this tree stood out to me was because all around it I was walking through a, an area that had recently been just ravaged by a forest fire um, and and really was was basically a dead area 
But yet somehow this tree was just standing, just alive in the middle of all of this deadness. And I just, it just caught my attention. So as I'm walking closer and closer and I'm, and I'm thinking about this sermon and I'm thinking about this text and I'm, I'm praying about, Lord, what, what, what do you want to do here? What do you want to say here? What, what, what does this text say? And, and I'm looking at this tree and I start to get closer and I realize something really interesting. Uh, and that was that the tree that looked so healthy and so big and so robust and uh, so vibrant was actually dead. Uh, I guess I took a, took a picture of it to show you guys. So as I got closer, this is what the stump of this tree looked like. And, and as you can see, it's completely hollowed out. Um, it basically, the fire came along and exposed that the, the tree had actually been dead probably for some time. The fire didn't necessarily kill the tree. I believe the fire actually came along and just exposed that this tree actually was on its way out. It was completely hollow, completely disconnected from the root system, which brings the nutrients and the life to the tree itself. Um, I just thought that was astounding. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, how does this tree still look alive? How does it still have green on it? How does it still look so stable? And really what it, what it speaks to is the fact that this tree is resilient. But though it's resilient, it's dead. Okay, even though it's resilient, it's dead. And what the fire has done is just come along and just simply expose the fact that it's dead, the fact that it has no life, the fact that this tree is not going to grow any bigger than it is. In fact, in, in probably just a matter of years, it's going to fall and it's begin, going to begin to rot. You know, sometimes we think that, the, that, that fire actually ruins things, but a lot of times fire and trials and struggles actually simply expose the reality of the way things actually are. This tree got me thinking about, about people, it got me thinking about people that, that on the outside just have this ability to look like everything is healthy. People in our culture, people that I know, including myself, that just have the, the ability to resiliently put off uh, this idea that we're just so healthy and everything is good and everything is fine and on the inside everything is, is the way it should be. In reality, most people that we see, most people that we pass in the grocery store, most people that make our coffee in the morning uh, are, are not only perishing, but they are dead. And, and although on their Instagram and although on their exterior and although on their painted on smile, they may put off a vibe that they're very much alive, in reality, they're very much dead. And time and trials and struggles have a way of exposing that, don't they? I mean, we see these Hollywood actors and we see them uh, on, their, on their, their TV shows and on their movies and we see them on the, the magazines and they seem like their life is just so vibrant and they're so alive. And, and we look at that and we think, why are they so happy? And then years pass and trials come and the 10th divorce comes and struggles come and it begins to expose the reality that people like Robin Williams, for instance, and other famous people actually were dead on the inside. They had no life. They were completely lifeless. And life has a way of exposing that, doesn't it? Now God's love is such that it demands that we heal not only on the outside, God's love is not that we, it demands that we don't just put on a, a peripheral exterior look of health. God's love is so ravenous for you that he cares about the very depths of who you are. He cares about you being healthy at the deepest part of your soul. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to do that, to bring health to you. But how do we know, okay? Here's, here's the question I want to run after this morning. How do we know if we're truly a fruit-bearing tree? And how do we know if we just simply appear to have a lot of foliage? How do we know? Do we have to wait till things unravel? Do we have to wait till midlife crisis? Do we have to wait till cancer hits? Do we have to wait till marriage ends and struggle comes to realize that all along we actually were dead? Or is there a way that we can know? Is there a way that we can right now press in this morning and say, God, am I healthy? Am I a fruit-bearing tree? Am I alive? Even though everything on the outside says to everyone around me that I am, is there a way that we can truly know? And what if I'm not? What if I think I am? What if I think I'm this healthy, vibrant person, and in reality, I'm actually dead on the inside? Well, Jesus cares about that. He cares immensely about that. In our text this morning, Jesus has an encounter with a group of people uh, that are dead trees. 
They're dead trees. And even though on the exterior, maybe they have lots of green, lots of foliage, lots of seeming health, Jesus sees right through the exterior into the heart, into the soul of these people like he so often does. And he begins the process of exposing the reality of where they're at. Jesus not only looks at these people, he looks at the nation that he's walking among, the nation of Israel, and he sees it. He sees it as a dead tree. And even though the sacrificial system is going and Jews are worshiping in the temple and the law is being observed and and studied, uh, Jesus sees the fact that Israel is actually a tree that is about to be cut down because it's dead, because it's gone. And this morning we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we know if we're healthy? How do we be healthy? And not just on the outside. For a culture that is obsessed with the outside, with what we look like on the outside, how do we go deeper into that and say, are we truly fruit-bearing trees? Now, when Jesus talked about spiritual death, he didn't necessarily call it spiritual death. You know what he called it? He called it being unrepentant. He called it being unrepentant. He didn't say, you guys are spiritually dead. He said, you guys are unrepentant. That was Jesus' way of saying, you have no spiritual life within you. You're a tree that looks alive, but it's really dead. That was his vernacular. Now, we don't really like that language, repentant. You whip that word out to your non-Christian coworker, and he's probably going to walk away from you. But that was Jesus' choice of words. And it's actually a really good choice of word. The, the, the word repentant is what we want to dive into this morning. And I want to ask the question, how do we know and how does repentance show us whether we actually are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. So let's get into the text. Uh, we read it, but let's just take it verse by verse like we usually do. Uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. Again, it says, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now that's an interesting verse. Jesus is having, he's preaching. He's been preaching for some time. Chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is having this monologue where he's, he's, he's preaching about some pretty hard stuff. And as he's preaching about some hard stuff, apparently the people that are in the crowd, it begins kind of eliciting some kind of a response from them. And they approach Jesus and they say, hey, master, rabbi, teacher, can we, can we bring up something to you? We want to hear your comment on it. And what they bring up to him is basically the current events. They bring up to him the newspaper. They basically slap the newspaper down on the table in front of Jesus and say, have you heard about what happened the other day? It's like water cooler stuff, right? Did you hear did you, did, have you seen the news, Jesus? And this is apparently news to him. He's not aware of this. Okay. He doesn't know. What am I looking at? Wow. What does it mean? Like, what? Should I tie it to my pulpit? I mean, what? Is this life or death? I don't know. This is going to be a distraction. I'm going to have to get rid of that. Uh, it's just going to float there. Okay. Okay. Can you deal with that? Security? Can I get... This is where the guy with the thing is supposed to come up with a knife and, and just pop it and walk away like it never happened. Did you plan that, Josh? Okay. That's incredible. I just completely lost my point. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> How do you recover from this? Okay. The star is falling. Yeah. This. Okay. We should pray again. No. So they're bringing up current events to, to Jesus, okay? They're, they're literally bringing up something that he hasn't quite heard about yet, something that's been going on uh, politically, basically. And what they bring up is this, this fact that, that maybe a week ago or two weeks ago or something like that, in the temple, Pilate, who was the governor of, uh, of the Palestinian area ruling for Rome, okay, uh, had his troops go in and basically massacre a group of Galileans, and, and he had them do it while they were uh, either in or around or doing sac- sacrifices, which tells us it probably took place in the temple because there's one place that you sacrifice in Israel, and that's the temple, which is in Jerusalem. Okay, it's probably more than likely during Passover. Uh, Passover was the time that Pilate and his guard would have been in Jerusalem. If you remember the crucifixion, that's why Pilate was in town. His house was actually outside of Jerusalem, but he would come in for that. So more than likely, it's during Passover, and we don't know exactly why Pilate had these guys killed, these Galileans, um, and had their, their blood sort of spilt all over where the, the sacrifices were. But we're kind of left to speculate on that. There's no historical account of this happening necessarily, but I, I think I have a, a pretty good idea of why it was. 
Um, I actually think probably what happened, and I can't be dogmatic about this, but I think what probably happened was uh, this group of Galileans, which were probably sort of an insurrectionist group, potentially um, somehow did something to, to frustrate the Roman government. Uh, the Roman, Roman governor and empire, um, and were basically running from Pilate and his guard, trying to, to claim sanctuary at the horns of the altar. This is what my guess is. I'm thinking they're running from him, they hold on to the altar, and guess what? Pilate doesn't really care. He doesn't have any respect for the Jewish religion. He doesn't have any respect for the Jewish God or fear for the Jewish God. And he has them slain right there um, in the sanctuary, right there at the altar, and, and it's just a bloody, a bloody mess. Okay, that's, that's more than likely what's going on. But that's really not the point, okay? That's really not the main thing that we need to talk about. I want to ask the question, why did they bring this up? What, what was it that these guys came to Jesus and said, hey, we really want to bring up the current events, what's going on? What was the reason for that? I think there's, there's, there's a few reasons they probably did. They, they may have been trying to elicit some kind of a response from Jesus politically, Maybe see if they could get him to talk about how frustrated he was with the Roman Empire, possibly. Uh, they may have been trying to, to, to say it was some kind of a sign because Jesus had just been telling him that they were really bad at, at recognizing the signs and seasons. But I actually think more than likely the reason that they're bringing this up to Jesus uh, is simply because they're wanting to justify themselves. You say, what are you talking about? What are you trying to justify themselves? If you look back one verse in chapter 12, the last thing Jesus says before they bring this up, he says, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus has just been talking about how there is a, 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 a reckoning coming and that each one must stand before a holy and righteous God and that that reckoning, uh, you, you better be able to pay your accounts. So I believe that these guys were probably standing there listening to Jesus talk about the, the judgment and righteousness of God, and they step in and say, oh, you want to talk about judgment and righteousness? Well, did you hear about the Galileans, who obviously did something to offend God, who obviously were probably drunkards, probably pr- didn't obey the law, and, and, and they, they were slain by, by Rome, but ultimately that was probably God, right? I mean, God is probably getting back at them for something that they did, some kind of a sin that they committed. They're, they're bringing it up, I think, to try to shift the focus away from the pressure that Jesus has just put on with his preaching onto something else that happened. Sort of a change the subject, alleviate the pressure. And isn't it funny how, how we have a way of doing that? I was thinking about, I was thinking about this, you know, for, for a culture, again, for a culture that is so shallow when it comes to dealing with stuff in our own heart and our own soul we're obsessed with talking about the garbage of everyone else we have an insatiable appetite for the news an insatiable appetite for movies about gory and raw and and real things and we we fancy ourselves to be a culture that's very honest and very very real and we love watching movies that bring out real elements but what we hate doing is talking about what's inside of us we absolutely hate doing that And so what I think is that these guys, as Jesus is pressing them with preaching that is hard, preaching that would bring division, they're feeling the hand of God pressing them. And I think they're like, let's divert the attention over to the sinful Galileans. There's a little bit of backdrop you need to understand here too about the Galileans, by the way. Galilee, if you remember, it was the area in the north where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. There was the Sea of Galilee up there where Peter's house was and many cities up there. And there was a little bit of a divide uh, between the people who lived in Jerusalem and the people that lived in Galilee. See, the people who lived in Jerusalem, they were sort of the urban folk. You ever hear someone from Portland talk about people from Medford? (laughs) Totally, it's the same thing. Like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have as good a coffee as you guys wear skinny jeans and write with quill pins or whatever. I mean, you know, whatever you do in Portland, I'm sorry, we're not that cool. We hunt and fish and do whatever. I mean, so, you know, there's a divide there that's obvious between sort of the metro areas and the urban areas. The people in Jerusalem look at the people in Galilee and they think they're hicks. They think they're country bumpkins. They think they're uneducated, that, they, that they're probably um, worshiping God in a way that's inappropriate considering that the north of Israel was apostate for the longest. And there's a, a bit of judgment, of judgment there. And the reason I think that is because Jesus ends up bringing up another account that happened in Jerusalem just to show them. Actually, it has nothing to do with the fact that they're Galileans. It has everything to do with the fact that they're humans. And humans die. So there's, there's, some, there's some racist overtones here, some, some territorialist overtones here that they're bringing up as to why it would be the, the Galileans that this has happened to. But ultimately, I think they're trying 
to move the attention away from themselves. Now, Jesus, like he so masterfully does all the time, he, he, he takes their statement and rather than do what I probably would have done or you probably would have done and said, yeah, that was really terrible what happened with the Galileans, we should stop and have a moment of silence. Or, or let, me, let, me, uh, let me offer up a quick eulogy to commemorate the death of these Galileans. He didn't, he didn't make them into martyrs. Uh, he didn't heroize them. He didn't eulogize this. He didn't memorialize this. Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't do what they wanted him to do, which was to stop and pay attention to the current events. He actually went right around it and put his finger right on the backbone of what these people were trying to avoid him bringing up which was their own sin, their own issues. Look at how he does it. It's really amazing. Verse two, he answered them, which by the way, they weren't asking him a question. <laughs> they were just telling him about something going on. But he, asked, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What's Jesus doing here? He's exposing their worldview. He's saying, do you, do you guys think actually that, that these Galileans are something they did to dishonor God? Do you think that's why they were being judged? And his answer is clearly no. No. Why is Jesus bringing this up? He's bringing it up, first of all, because he knows that the Jews have this really wrong thinking about the way that God punishes people based on what they do or don't do. That, that, that God sort of is waiting to pick on those that are perhaps not living according to the law in a certain way. Okay, you see this with Job's friends. When Job has this falling out in his life and all of his friends come and start trying to help him by telling him that he really just did something wrong. Or you see this in Jesus' encounter with the, the, the blind boy and they say, who sinned, this boy or his parents? And Jesus goes, neither. That's not how it works. Jesus' point here, it's really clear, it's really simple. His point is, is that death has no distinction. Death comes for every human. Death is not something that is avoidable. Christian, non-Christian, African, American, European, wherever, you are going to die. It's going to happen. It could come anytime, anyplace, anywhere. It's not something that you can simply avoid because of your ethnicity or because of the way that you live. Death comes for everyone. And it comes without warning. Look at what Jesus says uh, in verse 4. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell. And killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus is bringing up a second account. He says, oh, you want to talk about terrible things? Well, did you hear about what happened just down the road by the pool of Siloam where a tower fell and crushed people? Jerusalem citizens? Not Hicks and Galilee, but Jerusalem citizens? What's Jesus doing here? What, what he's doing is he's taking the pressure that current events create... And current events, don't they have a way, when the Twin Towers fell, you know, like almost revival broke out in New York. I mean, Tim Keller and Redeemer Church exploded during 9-11 because a similar thing happened. This atrocity happened where, where people died and it didn't make any sense and no one had the answers except the gospel. And people went flooding to church looking for answers. And they did the same thing. They, they went and they said, Lord, how could this happen? And guess what? The gospel had an answer for them. And tons of people in New York got saved because of 9-11. But what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't just take the current events and let them be what they are. He takes them and he uses the pressure that those create to push people towards repentance. To push people to see the reality of their need to be saved. So what Jesus does. He, he says, oh, you want to talk about hard things. The reality is, is that every one of you will die. It's coming, and you can't decide when it's coming. But you can decide what happens after you die. You do have a say in that. I love how adamant Jesus is about refuting their thinking that this death happened because of something they did. He just says, no. It did not happen because they were worse sinners. The reason he's so adamant about it is because he knows that if you think this way, you'll never be able to believe the gospel. If you think that you are, are, are going to have a good or bad life or have eternal life or non-eternal life because you do something, that is a barrier, a roadblock to keep you from believing in the grace of God. So he's adamant about it. He's clear about it. And then he moves from asking a question to giving a warning. Look at this. He says, Again, in verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And he says, No. And then he immediately launches into this, this warning. 
He says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says the same thing in verse 5. He's adamant about it. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, when I first read that, I was really confused by that because it seems contradictory. Jesus is saying, uh, no, these guys didn't die because of what they did. But if they don't do something, they're going to die. That seems contradictory, Jesus. They didn't die because of something they did or didn't do. But if they don't do something, a.k.a. repent, they're going to die. We need to understand here in the text is that the word perish, I believe, is not referring to death physically. Jesus is saying if you don't repent when you die, not if you die, but when you die, you will perish, as in you will go into outer torment. You will go into outer darkness. You will be separated from God for all eternity if you do not repent before you die. Death is coming. It's coming for all of us. It's unavoidable. I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, don't miss his solution. And this is, this is all intro, okay? Uh, don't miss his solution here. His solution to perishing is very simple. And we don't like it as humans, but it's very simple. His solution to perishing is one word, and the word is to repent. And when I say that word, you, your mind literally goes to some guy in the 1800s with a wig on, shouting from a pulpit 20 feet above the church, repent. Right? And it just is an immediate Western turnoff. Or you think about the guy on the street corner who's yelling at cars going by with a sandwich board sign over his neck, screaming, repent, right? And you just think, what does that mean? And why does that language even have to be used? Jesus chose the word repent. He didn't apologize about it. He also didn't give a 10-page report on how to be saved. He didn't give 20 points on how to not perish. He said one thing. He said, repent, This was the means, this was the way, this was the the, the way that you keep from perishing was simply to repent. And it's a word that we need to understand as Christians. It's a word that we need to make sure we get right. And it is the word that Jesus spends the next half of our text explaining with a parable. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. He calls them to repentance and then he explains a parable that actually puts some meat on the bones of what he means by repentance. And here's how we're going to take this on this morning. Okay, so if you're a note taker, uh, we're going to look at four points in this parable. Okay, four points in this parable. And each of those points, if you're here today and you're really wanting to not repent, this is going to be the perfect sermon for you. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you four ways to stay unrepentant. Okay? There's got to be someone here who's like, yes, I really didn't want to come to church today, and now he's going to give me pointers on how to stay unrepentant. Okay, four pointers on how to stay unrepentant. So we'll look at four things, and out of each of those at some point, I will show you and help you out in that area. Let's read the parable again together and then look at it. He told this parable, verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. First thing I want to point out to you is that a man owns the fig tree. So Jesus launches into this parable and and, and, and the the tools that he chooses to grab to illustrate it are two very common things, things that come up in the scriptures all the time, a fig tree and a vineyard. Okay, now if you've read the Old Testament, you might be thinking some lights might be going off a little bit. Wait a minute, the fig tree and the vineyard, those are typically things that were used in the Old Testament to represent Israel, the nation of Israel. Jesus is pulling language from the Old Testament. With me, really quick, just flip over to Psalm chapter 80. Keep your finger in Luke. Just flip over to Psalm chapter 80. I just want to show you one of these. This is the kind of uh, scripture that Jesus is pulling on when he brings up this parable. Psalm chapter 80, verse 8. Talking about Israel, uh, he says, You brought a vine. Where do vines live? In vineyards. Okay. You guys are you're awake. Okay. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So what did he do? He he brought a vine out of Egypt. He, 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 He planted the vine. You cleared the ground for it and took deep root and filled the land. Now go back to Luke. Now that's one of many areas in the Old Testament where God says that Israel was like this vineyard that he literally took and planted it. Now, why do you plant a vineyard? Class participation. For grapes, for fruit, okay? You don't plant a vineyard just to plant a vineyard. You don't do it just so that you can say, look, I planted a vineyard. There it is. 
have fun. You plant a vineyard to produce fruit. And God planted a vineyard to produce fruit. And that fruit was called Israel. He made the nation. He invested himself into the nation. He, he created the nation in order that the nation might bring glory to himself. That the nation might be a fruitful nation. Different than all the other nations who didn't glorify God. So his first point in this parable is that there is a tree and the tree exists within the vineyard. And the tree and the vineyard both belong to an owner. They're not wild. It's not a wild vineyard and a wild tree. It's an owned vineyard and an owned tree. They belong to someone. Someone holds the title deed to those. And therefore, someone has the ability and the power to make a decision as to whether that vineyard and that tree continue to exist. And the person that planted that vineyard and that tree did so for fruit. Okay, everybody got that? That's the point he's trying to make there. The tree has a owner. Now, by way of application quickly here, we, as human beings, have an owner. We are owned. You are owned. That is probably one of the least popular things I could ever say to a Western audience. We have this idea that we do not answer to anybody, that nobody owns us, that we are free. Okay, that is not true. You are owned. God owns you. You belong to him You exist because he has invested into you. You have breath because he's given you breath. You and I were created by a God to produce fruit for the purpose of producing fruit. He didn't create human beings just to create human beings. He created human beings to bring glory unto himself. And when we step out of our purpose, we are a barren tree. We're a fruitless tree. The purpose we were created for was to bear fruit. And when we don't do so, the owner has every right to come knocking. To give you an example, if if a business borrows a million dollars to go start a startup, and within a year they're not profitable, they haven't made any money, and they go to the the loaner and the, the person that made the loan and they said, you know, sorry that we didn't make any money, but, you know, it's our business, so... Like, what are the people going to say that loan them a million dollars? They're going to say, I don't care that it's your business. It was my investment. It was my investment. You can say all that you want, that it's my life. I do what I want. I don't answer to God. I, I, I don't have to answer to God. It's my life. No, it's not your life. Your life has been given as an investment. You are owned. Israel was given as an investment. It is owned. It was given for a purpose. I'd be out of my mind if, I mean, I went and bought wood years back and I took the wood and I went into my shop and I built a table and I put the table into my house and I locked my doors and if someone broke into my house and took my table, would that be wrong? Would I have the right to prosecute them? Yes, because it was my table. I built it. It was in my house. Okay. Does God have the right to prosecute those that say their life is their own? When in fact, he is the one that has created us. He is the one that owns us. He is the one that has invested in us. He is the one that has made us. I don't want to belabor this point, but it's important that you understand the first thing Jesus is pointing out in this parable is that we belong to someone and that reason that we have been made by that someone is to produce fruit. That's the purpose. Let me give you a little little way to figure out if you believe that you own yourself. If you say things like, my sin is okay as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. Have you ever heard that? That is a clear sign that you think you own your own life. Because all sin affects God. All sin is a sin against God. To realize that you were owned by God realizes that everything that you do ultimately should matter what God thinks more than what anyone else thinks. If you make decisions completely based on what seems right to you, then you may not realize that you are owned. If you treat your possessions like they're yours, you may not realize that you're owned. If you believe you're entitled to the life that you believe you deserve, you may not realize that you are owned. There's another parable Jesus gives in the New Testament. He talks about a vineyard, okay? Same language. He talks about a vineyard and he says that, that this guy planted a vineyard and he went off into a foreign country and, and the vineyard was planted to produce fruit. That was the point of the vineyard. 
And so after some time, when the, the harvest had come, he sent one of his servants in to go and collect the, the money from the fruit and the wine that would have been created. And the tenants, the people that were supposed to be watching the vineyard, decided, hey, you know what? Let's keep the money for ourselves. Forget the fact that this vineyard doesn't belong to us. Let's keep it for ourselves. And they beat the steward, or they beat, they beat the servant who come collecting and sent him on his way. So the owner did the same thing, and he did the same thing, and he did the same thing. He continually sent people to come and collect, and every time they would ultimately beat them and send them away. And so finally the owner says, well, I will send my son. Surely, surely they will honor my son. He sends his son, and what do they do? They kill him. This parable, of course, was talking about Israel. The, the people that came to collect were the prophets. God planted Israel as a vineyard. The point was that they would produce fruit. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them of who actually owned the vineyard. And they continually would beat the, the, the people coming to collect until ultimately it would end in them crucifying the son himself. They refused to acknowledge that they had an owner. So, the first way, if you're here and you're really excited about learning how to remain unrepentant, the first way is to simply refuse to acknowledge that you have an owner. Just go on pretending like you are in charge of your life. Go on pretending like, like you hold the title deed to your actions and decisions. That's, that's all you have to do. Continue to believe that your life is your own. The second thing I want you to notice here in our parable is in verse 7. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, okay, we're introducing another character here, okay, so we have the owner, we have the vine dresser. Look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Okay, three years is ample time for a fig tree to at least be showing signs of some fruit. This tree, however, is not showing any fruit. So the second thing I want you to notice is not only does it have an, an owner, the parable has, I'm sorry, the tree has a problem. The tree has an owner, but the tree also has a problem. And the problem is, is that the tree can't produce fruit. Now, apparently it's producing plenty of leaves because the owner actually has to walk up to it to realize that there's no fruit. So it's plenty of foliage, but very little fruit. This is a problem. The tree is incapable of producing fruit. So the owner says, cut it down. Why is it using up the ground? It's, it's, it's creating shade that covers the sun from getting to the grapes. Cut the fig tree down. It's useless. It has a problem. Now, the Old Testament solidified for us the reality that Israel was incapable of producing fruit, didn't it? Because if you read the Old Testament, there's one thing that will be blatantly obvious by the time you get done, and that is Israel was a barren vineyard, a barren tree, were they not? They tried, and they tried, and they tried to produce fruit for God, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they couldn't. And Jesus is the son now coming to that vineyard to collect, and ultimately pointing out the fact that they are, they are barren, have not, cannot produce fruit. But the interesting thing is this. Jesus says, you have not produced fruit, so repent. But isn't the whole point that they can't? I mean, isn't the whole point that they can't get it together? After thousands of years of, of Israel being in rebellion to God, Jesus is saying, okay, either you need to repent or you're going to get cut down. Well, isn't it obvious that they can't? Isn't it obvious that they aren't able to produce fruit? Well, you have to ask yourself, what is it that Jesus was asking Israel to repent by, what was he asking them to do in repenting? It wasn't to get their stuff together. It wasn't to start nailing it in regards to the law. It was to embrace the Messiah. To repent would have simply been to realize that God had sent them their source of righteousness. That God himself had come in human flesh to bring a, a way of righteousness and sanctification for the nation. And they couldn't embrace that. They couldn't realize that. They ultimately crucified the Son of God. They were so dead, so unrepentant, they crucified the Son of God. Now, bear with me. Flip over to John chapter 15. Hopefully this will start coming together for you. One of the most stunning statements that Jesus makes, and most people don't realize it, is in John 15. After hundreds of years of Israel not producing fruit, not 
creating fruit that brings glory to God. Listen to what Jesus says. And this would not have been lost on the audience. They would have completely understood that. It would be lost on us. They would not have missed this. Israel is what? They're the vine. They're the vineyard, right? They are the vineyard that God planted. And here is Jesus in one of his famous I am statements. Listen to what he says, 15 verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. You're like, so what? Jesus is stepping into the scene and saying, Israel, I am replacing you. I am the new Israel. Jesus is saying that that you had your shot. You were a non-productive vine. And now, Jesus says, I am the vine that can produce fruit. He goes on, he says, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, listen to this, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. What Jesus is saying is, Israel, you have proved to be fruitless, but I am here to replace I am here to be the source of life for you. I'm here to allow you to become a branch, to stop trying to be a tree because you can't produce fruit on your own and you just simply become a branch. You just be grafted into me. You just hold on to me. Jesus was the ultimate grace for Israel. He said, you you get another shot, Israel. I'm here. I'm gonna give you the righteousness that you need. You just gotta give up trying to be a tree and become a branch. Give up trying to be a tree and become a branch. And what did they do? They crucified the new vine. They crucified the new source of life. If they had only realized and recognized that they could not produce fruit. Now listen, repentance is not simply choosing to just get your stuff together. That's what people think when you see the word repentance. Like, oh man, I gotta get my stuff together. I gotta repent. Repentance is not choosing to just get your stuff together. Repentance is acknowledging that you cannot do it without the Son of God. That you cannot produce fruit without Him, without His righteousness. Repentance is saying, I'm done with living my own righteousness. I can't do it anymore. That's what repentance is. What Jesus was calling Israel to do was not to get it together. What he was calling them to do was to cling to him as a branch clings to a tree and said, I'll produce fruit through you. But they wouldn't do it. That's why Paul said, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not your own works in you, your own righteousness in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why Paul said, I count it all rubbish. All the things that I did, all the fruit that I produced as, as, a, as a, a religious Jew, I count that as all rubbish for the sake of Christ in me. What we need to repent of is not just our screwing up and our sin, although we do. What we need to repent of is this belief that we are good enough, that we can live righteous enough. Have you ever, have you ever done that? Have you ever repented of your, your belief that you're enough? Repented of your, your attempt to try to make your work sufficient for righteousness? It's been incredibly clear to me how often I need to do that. How many times a day I begin to drift away from believing the gospel and start to believe in my own righteousness or lack thereof. Repentance is believing the gospel. Repentance is believing that God's righteousness is far superior to your own. It's believing it every day. When your right or wrong actions start changing how you approach God, you ever do that? That whether you're doing good or you're doing bad uh, basically informs whether or not you can pray that day, whether or not you feel comfortable coming to God. You need to repent of that thinking. That's a failure to believe the gospel. Refusing to pray because you're ashamed or because you're guilty or you think God's judging you is a failure to believe the gospel. You need to repent of your failure to believe the gospel. That he is good, that he has provided perfect righteousness for you. When your mood and your joy and your hope and your assurance ebb and flow based off of your feelings, that's a failure to believe the gospel. You need to repent of that. 
My wife and I, we just, we just got back from like the world's, world's worst vacation. Like it was terrible. We tried getting out of the smoke. We thought it'd be a good idea. So we drove to Boise and it was horrible. My son got the flu. My daughter got something I had to take her to the doctor and get antibiotics. She was having to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes the whole way. It took us 12 hours to get home. We got a terrible Airbnb thing. It was, we ended up staying in a motel. Just creepy, weird stuff. It was just totally weird. And my wife and I were driving home and I'm thinking about the sermon and I'm anticipating the sermon and I'm just thinking, I've had to repent five million times on this trip. Not only just because I'm, I was angry with my kids and I was short with my wife and I was selfish and I was frustrated, although I was all of those things. You know what the main thing I kept having to repent for? Not believing the gospel. I was saying, what are you talking about, believing the gospel? I, I literally realized that, that my anger and my frustration and my lack of hope and my lack of joy and my fear of prayer and all of these things are all linked to this thing that I'm not believing that God is enough to fix my situation. When I'm up at two in the morning and my son is, is, is throwing up and I just want to sleep and my, my kids are like, I'm not believing the gospel in that moment. I'm, I'm choosing that something I can do can fix that situation. I'm not believing that Christ is actually the answer. I'm not actually looking to him and saying, all right, Lord, you got to fix this. I'm running out to fix it. I'm, I'm choosing to not believe in his sufficiency and I'm choosing to, to embrace my own. Christianity in so many ways, is continually repenting, repenting, and repenting of this idea that we can do it on our own. You can't. You're just a stick. You're just a stick. You're not a tree. And if you try to be a tree, you're going to be a fruitless one. You've got to realize, he is the source of life. Hold on to him. Abide to him. Repent of this idea that you can produce anything good and of yourself and cling to his righteousness, cling to his power, cling to his goodness, and allow him to work and live through you. So the second way, if you want to continue in unrepentance, if you want to continue in unrepentance, you just keep on believing that you have what it takes. You keep on believing that you can bear fruit. Just try a little harder. Maybe try a different Bible reading plan. Maybe fast a little bit more. Maybe try a different church. Whatever it is, keep trying it. Maybe it's heritage. Maybe heritage is the problem. If I just leave heritage, maybe, maybe I'll be able to be a little bit more righteous, produce more fruit. That's not the problem. The problem is your failure to believe the gospel. The problem is the failure to see that Christ is enough. The failure is to, st- the failure is to think that you're a tree that can bear fruit. You're not. And I'm not. We're a stick that abides. Third, three, third thing I want you to see in this parable, going back to Luke now. Not only is there someone that owns the tree, and not only is there the tree have a, a problem, but the tree also has a caretaker. The tree has a caretaker. Verse 7, And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use it the ground? And he answered him, okay, the vine dresser, he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is what I love about this, is that we have a vine dresser. We have someone who is, who is interceding for us. Someone who's stepping in and saying, I'm not just going to let you be a barren tree. I'm going to do everything possible to help you become a, a life-giving, fruitful tree. And look at all the things that the vine dresser does. The first thing he does is he goes after our roots. You notice that? He doesn't say, oh, the tree's barren. Let me go up and, and, and just maybe like cut a few branches off or, 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 or let, me, let, me, let me spray it with something. That's not what he does. He gets down on his hands and his knees and he, gets, he rolls up his sleeves and he sticks his hands into the, the, into the dirt and he begins to, to work at the roots of the tree. Because he knows that if the tree is really going to be healthy, the tree has to have a healthy root system. What he's doing is he's breaking up the ground so that the roots can actually receive the water. So that the, the, the roots can actually get the nutrients that it's needing. He's thinking maybe that's the issue. Listen, when God works in your heart, when God deals with you, he goes deep. He doesn't deal with the surface stuff. He goes into the depths. It's one of the most terrifying things about serving Jesus sometimes. Is I know that when he does work in me, he does it deep. He's not interested in behavior modification. He's interested in what the deepest part of my soul is missing. He's interested in, 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 in my roots. What is it that I'm believing that is forcing me to live in a way that is, that is not what he's asked me to do? 
Where am I, where am I choosing to believe something other than the gospel? He, he gets in deep. Do you know the word repentance simply means to change your mind? Okay? It means to change your mind. Well, why does it mean change your mind instead of change your actions? Because your mind informs your actions. What you think about something is going to determine what you do. If I think something is true, I will act on it. And so what the vine dresser is doing is he's realizing that the root system is the issue. He gets down and he, and he allows the root system to take in the water. This is what God does with us. He gets down on his hands and knees. He comes in the form of a man. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, gives us the word, allows us to, to rethink the, the way that we process. It says in Romans that he's transforming our minds. Our minds are like our root system. It's what takes in everything that, that informs why we do things. He's in there. He's, he's digging deep. He's dealing with those heart issues. Paul prays in Ephesians 3. He says, Paul, he says, paraphrasing, their faith could be rooted. He prays that their faith could be rooted and grounded in love in order to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the fullness of God and his love. God's heart for us, Paul prays, is that our root system would be deep and it would sink into his love. And we have a vine dresser who is doing that work for us, who is doing the deep work in our heart, doing the deep work in our life. I love that not only does he get down on his, on his hands and knees and deal with our roots, he also deals with manure. <laughs> he deals with our poop, okay? He, he just, he gets down and he gets his hands in manure and he starts, he starts, he's just he's flinging everywhere and it's making a big mess, but he doesn't care. His goal is to save the tree. He gets into the garbage of our life. He gets his hands on the problem. He doesn't sit at a distance like some faraway God. He engages in stuff with us. This is the, the, the love of our God to, to work in the moment with us. He also intercedes for us. Notice that in the parable. He goes to the owner of the, the, the vineyard and he engages with him on behalf of the tree. It's what Jesus does with us. He's patient with us. He gives us more time. He absorbs the cost And lastly, I love this. He does not walk away from the tree until nothing else could be done. You notice that? He does not walk away from the tree until everything that could possibly be done to bring life to that tree is done. It's his goodness that ultimately brings us to a place of repentance. Do you know that? The third way, if you're you're still wanting to, to walk in unrepentance, the third way to do that is just to simply refuse to be won over by the goodness of God. You know what makes you repent? What makes you change your mind? It's not God's severity. It's not God's wrath. I lived in fear of God's wrath for 17 years of my life. It never changed anything. You know what changed me in a deep level was seeing the goodness of God, seeing the, 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 the patience of God, that he had been on his hands and knees working at my root system for 17 years, drawing me back to myself, or drawing me back to himself. That was what won me over to Christ. It was his goodness, his love, his patience with me. That's why Romans 2, 3 through 5, or do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's the goodness of the vine dresser. What keeps us from him is not believing that he really is good. What keeps us from walking as fruitful lives as believers is refusing to believe that he really is that good. That he really is willing to get down on his hands and knees and, and deal with our issues. To free up our roots. The gospel in so many ways, is, it's like a platform. If we were hanging off of a cliff and you had a harness on, and you had just gotten so used to holding on to that harness for just for years, that was the only thing keeping you from falling. And someone came and built a platform right underneath you. A solid platform, but you couldn't see it. And they said, all you got to do is just cut, you just got to cut the rope from that harness and you're going to fall right into a solid platform. Your willingness to cut that harness would be directly related to how much you believed whether or not that platform was really there. Repentance and faith, they're the same thing. Repentance is saying, I'm choosing to lay aside what I've always clung to, which is me, my works, my righteousness, my hopes, and I'm choosing to cut it loose 
and fully rest myself on the platform of the gospel. The fourth thing that I want you to see here, and then we'll conclude, is that the tree has an end. Not only does the tree have an owner, not only does the tree have, uh, I already forgot what number three or two is, a problem, but the tree has a, a caretaker, but the tree also has an end. And this is one of Jesus' primary points here. Look at verse nine. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And this is, this is the part that's hard to hear. But in reality, for those that are not repentant, life runs out. God's patience does have an end. His patience does have an end. And at some point, the axe is laid to the foot of the tree with Israel. This is what John the Baptist came saying. He's saying, the tree's coming down, Israel. Either you embrace Christ and become a branch, or the tree is coming down. And it did. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Our time will run out. We have to consider those that are perishing around us. I mean, Christ, I think, is obviously the vine dresser in here, but we have opportunity within our lives, within our spheres, to look and see who can I be the vine dresser for? Who can I go and intercede for? Who can I, who can I get into the roots with? Who is perishing? Who, who could die at any point and perish eternally? And how can I go in and, and, and actually make a change in this person and bring them to the point where they can become a fruit-bearing tree? I just want to end on a couple of clarifiers because what I didn't want to do was, was talk a bunch about repentance and have you guys still not understand what repentance is. So I'm just going to close with five quick things about repentance and then we'll, we'll head out of here. They'll be really quick. So five quick things on what repentance is. First of all, rep- repentance is where Christianity both starts and ends. Repentance is where Christianity both starts and ends. To get saved, it takes a moment of saying, God, I choose to die to myself. And I choose to follow you. But it doesn't end there. Repentance does not end at the front door of Christianity. Repentance is Christianity. Repentance is constantly, every day, all day, as a Christian saying, Lord, (laughs) I need you to change my mind. I I need to breathe repentance. I need to breathe in your truth, your grace, your love, and breathe out my flesh, my sin, my selfishness. Constantly. Repentance is an everyday action of the Christian and your health as your health will be directly, spiritual health will be directly attached to your willingness and ability to constantly repent. To constantly say, Lord, I'm wrong in this area. Lord, I'm wrong in this area. I need you to fix me. Constantly believe the gospel over and over again. Number two, repentance is more than sorrow over consequence. Some people have this idea that to be repentant is just to feel really bad. It's not. It's more than sorrow over consequences. Repentance is a deep change. Repentance is owning what you've done, owning where you've gone wrong, and actually truly desiring for God to change you. To believe something to the point where it actually changes your direction physically, both in your life, in your mind, the way that you think. It's not just feeling bad. Number three, repentance is not penance. Repentance is not penance. It's not just simply wanting to feel bad about something long enough that that you can feel forgiven. We have a tendency to do that. Like I can't come to God with my sin until I've felt bad for it, a few days at least. And then then it'll be more likely to forgive me. Repentance is not penance. Repentance is immediately believing the gospel is sufficient for you. That the gospel is actually powerful enough to forgive that sin. That's what repentance is. If you think you need to be guilty for a few days before you can repent of something, you need to repent of that failure to believe the gospel. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Like that, that's the main thing we need to repent of is our failure to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus actually is enough, that his atonement is enough, that his sacrifice is enough, that his love is enough, that his power and goodness is enough. Every day we need to repent of our failure to believe that. Number four, Repentance is letting God all the way in. I was thinking when I, when I wrote this, I was just thinking about these ships, these battleships that have these doors that are specifically made to seal off so that if water begins to come into the ship, it will stop the bleeding and the ship will not sink. You, you have those built into your soul by nature. God wants to come into the very deepest parts of who you are and begin to transform you from being a dead tree to being a living branch And he cannot do that if you have doors that you will not let him into. 
And every single one of us in this room, if we were honest and we were asked the question, what room do you not want the Lord to go into? That's where he wants repentance. That's where he wants you to trust him, that he's good enough that you can open that door to him and he will go in and he will not pick at you and prune you. He will heal you and give you deep life, deep healing. What is that one thing that you do not want God to press on? And number five, and this is important, you need to see repentance as a grace. It's a grace. It's not a chore. It's not just a discipline. Oh, I need to get up and repent today. Repentance is like releasing toxins. It's healthy. You just need it every day. You need to come to God with the things that you're falling short in and believe his grace to be sufficient for those things. You need to come to the Lord every day and see repentance as the way to life. Say, God, I'm just, I just am not enough, Lord. I need the cross. I don't have what it takes. I don't have what I need. I can't produce fruit. I repent, Lord, of, of my falling short, and I believe the cross every day, every moment, every second. To be a mature Christian is not to repent less. The mature Christian repents more because he realizes just how often he falls short and how often he needs to plead the blood of Jesus. It's like breathing for us. So I just want to ask you guys, when I show you that picture of that tree, just take an account. Just take an account like Jesus is calling them to do here. They just want to come and talk about news. They just want to come and talk about things going on in the world like we all want to. Let's talk about Russia. Let's talk about North Korea. Let's talk about global warming. Let's talk about the smoke. Let's talk about anything and everything. And Jesus says, no, I want to talk about you. I want to talk about where you're at. I want to talk about where you're not letting me in. I want to talk about whether you're really believing that the gospel is enough, whether you're really believing that I love you, whether you're really believing that I'm an intercessor for you. He wants to go into your heart. And I want to ask you guys, do you feel tired right now? Okay, I feel tired right now. Can I just be honest and vulnerable? I feel tired and I'm realizing that so much of why I feel tired right now is because for, for so long I'm just continually refusing to believe that Jesus is actually enough for me. Just day in and day out, continually looking to this world, continually looking to position or whatever it is to fulfill myself. And the most rest that I have is when I finally tap and say, God, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes, but you do. This terrible vacation, I keep bringing it up because it, I'm just tired from it and it's, it's, it's in the back of my head. There was this moment yesterday morning, we, we got up and we were up all night with my son just thrown up in a motel room and it was just this terrible thing. And, and, and we got up the next morning and I'm driving to Walmart, trying to find Walmart, just to get uh, some towels and clothes and things. And I just felt like just, I could just break down and cry. And I just felt like I could. And, and I just went, I'm so humbled right now by how bad at life I am. <laughs> And, and, and I don't say that to complain. I say that, to, that as soon as I said those words, I had peace come over me that was unexplainable. As soon as I said those words, it was like a flood was released of, oh, I am really bad at life. And that's okay. I am a failure in so many ways. I'm not the dad I should be. I'm not the husband I should be. I'm a terrible Christian and the, the, the flood of relief didn't come over in just admitting that those things are true. The flood of relief came when I remembered that the gospel was true. That those things don't determine or shouldn't determine my joy. That whether I'm a good dad or a good husband or a good Christian or this or that should not affect whether or not I'm happy. The gospel should affect that. Everything I need is in Christ. And it was like the sun just came up and thawed my heart and I just went, Lord, I'm just so glad that I can be not enough. I'm so glad that it doesn't have to be about my ability to perform. I'm just so glad I'm a branch. Can you just take, everybody just take a deep breath in here right now? And just, I'm just a branch. I'm not a tree. And if I'm trying to be a tree, I'm going to be frustrated with myself. But Lord, I just want to abide in you. Let you produce fruit through me. Amen. Let's all stand and pray. Lord, I just, I just want to admit to right now to you, Lord, I just want to repent right now, Lord, even in preaching this sermon, God, of just this constant belief that I can do things on my own. 
Lord, just this constant belief that I have what it takes, that I have the strength, Lord, and I just want to stop and say I don't. Lord, I don't have what it takes, but you do. And what you have done, the way that you have loved us, the blood that you have shed for us is sufficient for my weakness. Lord, it's, it's enough for my tiredness. Lord, it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. It's not feeling worse, carrying more of a burden. And God, I just pray for everyone in here this morning that just needs to tap, just needs to crumble into your arms and say, okay, enough. I believe that your grace is enough. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we would be those, we would be Christians that repent often that we see it as a grace, that we see it as an opportunity to reorient ourselves back to what really matters. And I thank you that it is sufficient for us, Lord. Your grace is sufficient for all of our needs, Lord. So we just want to find ourselves in you. We want to be people that are so stable, not because we're awesome, but because we believe in an awesome message that is real and true and changes everything. So God, I just pray that this parable that this section of scripture would just stick in our hearts, God, and it would always be just a testament to us, Lord, a reminder to be a branch and not a tree, Lord. Yeah, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.